10 years from now, 20 years from now, I want everybody in the U.S. to like recognize Boston as the best place to start a company. Zach Shavideo here from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of Kristen Kraft that you just heard. She's today's guest. She's a director of early stage startups at Silicon Valley Bank. She's got over 15 years of experience in enterprise software and digital marketing. She's playing a mentor role to tons of companies in the Boston community, working really closely with Jesse Bardo on that early stage startups team at SVB that just does great work supporting the Boston startup ecosystem. So you're in for a treat. Enjoy the conversation and have a lovely day. Cheers. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Kristen Kraft of Silicon Valley Bank. Kristen, how are you? I'm great, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Really uh, appreciate you taking the time on a, on a Friday here and in what's so far been a pretty beautiful fall, although a little rainy today, but we didn't have enough rain this year. So uh, I think I think we'll take it. Uh, I wanted to just sort of start by uh, like a lot of folks in the community. We have a lot of sort of younger listeners. We have a lot of entrepreneurs, some many times over, but a lot of first time entrepreneurs. They're familiar with Silicon Valley Bank and the role SVB plays uh, in the community, really sort of like in the trenches, like helping founders. Uh, but love sort of in your words um, to share with folks like what your what your role is at SVB. Uh, could you could you share that with us? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I am um, director of startup banking um, here in Boston and New England. And what that means on the most basic level is that I help founders, um, you know, with getting a bank account, getting a credit card. But it also includes a lot more on top of that. Everything that we sort of put into the category of founder success, um, you know, unlike mo- most, if not all other banks, like you know, we really love building relationships and being advisors and mentors um, and sounding boards and connectors for the startups and the founders who work with us. So if somebody is like just in the very first moment, they, they're they trying to set up their EIN number, they're trying to um, find an attorney, like we help with that. Um, if they are a bit further along and they're trying to figure out how to deploy marketing dollars, like we can advise on that um, or connect them with an amazing agency. Um, you know, if folks are are preparing to raise their Series A and they need to start talking to the right investors or working on their pitch deck, like we help with that also. Um, and and it's a, a pretty like exciting and well fitting role for me, given the fact that my entire career has been been built in tech startups here in Boston. Um, you know, I also have a background as a, a teacher. Um, you know, I did a, a master's in education at Harvard um, before getting my MBA. Um, so it, it, I think that the sort of skill sets that I need to leverage in this role um, come into play. Like it, my background lends itself really well to this work of supporting founders, not just with banking, but with everything else that can make or break their success. 
Very cool. That's a helpful overview. And I to kind of double click a little bit on founder success, kind of from your background, you mentioned this before we went live that you've you've been aware of SVB's role locally for some time because you've sort of been a client of SVB in, in, in your past life as a sort of tech entrepreneur. And I know when we were doing going through the pre-pod QA, you had mentioned sort of you you've you've almost over-indexed a little bit perhaps on bootstrap startups versus venture capital backed startups, which we can talk about that even maybe a little bit more later. But the the sort of the, the question I'm curious about right now is sort of what um what was some of that experience that you had with SVB from sort of the, the client side? Yeah. Um, you know, I think maybe this is a little bit less true if you're a serial entrepreneur. Um, well, maybe not, but I think for first-time entrepreneurs, you don't even know what you don't know. Um, you know, you you don't necessarily know how to get the answers to your questions because you don't even know what the right questions are to ask. Um and I've experienced this firsthand. Um, you know, I've been on startup, you know, I, I was a founder myself many years ago. Um, I was on startups as small, you know, with team sizes as small as like five or six people. Um, you know, there are some companies that I've helped grow from 13 to 113. Um, I've, I've kind of seen it all. And the one commonality is just that I, I think that so many founders and, and early teams like say the same thing over and over again. And the thing that they say is, oh man, like I wish I had known that three months ago um, or six months ago or whatever it is. Like you're always kind of playing catch up because you don't know what you don't know. Um, So at any rate, my my own experiences with SVB long before joining the team um, were incredible. I, I witnessed firsthand the way that SVB would facilitate introductions to VCs when needed. Um, I witnessed firsthand the way that they would bring the community together to help create greater access and, you know, better better connectivity here in the ecosystem. Um, I witnessed the way that they fostered diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like, in fact, the reason that my now boss, Jesse Bardo, and I met was because he was hosting a dinner, bringing together angel investors and operators here in Boston. And he noticed that there wasn't a a large enough, like there was a a small proportion of of female angel investors on the list. And so he reached out to a mutual friend, Jess, and was like, hey, I would love to see like more amazing female angel investors at this dinner. Like, can you help? And she included me. Um, So, you know, such such an incredible testament to like what SVB is all about, you know, what he is all about um, and about the impact that that SVB hopes to have um, here in New England and beyond. Nice. That's cool. I'm curious, what are some of the right questions to ask for, especially for first time founders? Like, what are some of the common questions or like, what are the questions you would encourage people ask and seek counsel on? Mm. Um, that's such a, I mean, I think like almost anything that touches, I'm a very like numbers oriented person. Um, so I would say like in general, probably anything that impacts your numbers. Um, for example, if you are about to make your first marketing hire and you're about to spend a lot of money on that hire, um, you better make sure that like you have a lot of confidence about the marketing skill set that person brings to the table. Um, and the fact that the, that skill set aligns with the marketing strategy that's going to work well for that particular company. Um, if you have a, a company that's almost entirely driven by like sales motions in market, like don't hire an SEO expert. Like that's not the right person for you. Um, Similarly, 
you know, if if you are, um, you know, if you have IP that could be very valuable to you someday, um, you better make sure you have an awesome IP attorney. Um, so, you know, I think it's a little, I, that's sort of a big answer, I know. Um, but I think like anything that touches revenue or future revenue in a significant way, like you should be asking a lot of questions. And what I mean by that is like, you should ask other founders in similar spaces, like, hey, I have this amazing IP, like who should I be talking to? Um, and then go talk to that lawyer and say, I have this incredible IP, like what should I know? What, like, what should I be thinking about three months out, six months out, 12 months out, um, you know? Talk with talk with VCs and get their perspective as well. I think um, so many so many founders, um, and I think particularly here in Boston because we're an incredibly smart, hardworking, like low ego city. Um, so many founders are very heads down building their product, which they absolutely should be doing. Um, and also, they should be talking to people about like what they might not see coming so that they can anticipate and avoid issues or take advantage of opportunities. So I think like, yes, like I love the fact that founders here in Boston are so heads down building their businesses. Um, and also I love it when I see people who are out there asking questions and getting input from other founders who've been there before or attorneys or other members of this ecosystem um, so that they can spend their time and their resources as wisely as possible. Cool. And then, and sort of connected to that, you also mentioned that a lot of the things you oftentimes hear from founders is like, oh, I wish I had, if I only knew this back in the day, like, and you don't necessarily have to call them regrets, but what, what thing, what, what example or examples would you point to again for the first time founders in particular, like, Hey, heads up. Like these are the common things that in retrospect, founders tend to agree. They wish they had known the first go around. Mm, I think a big piece, um, falls within the category of like documentation, policies, best practices. Um, almost every startup I know, almost every startup that I've been at and every startup I've like advised or mentored um, or been on the board for, like they're too slow on that front and it ends up coming back to bite them. Um, you know, I think that like it's it's very easy to do things without documentation when you're a small team of four. And it's very easy to say like, oh, I'm not going to worry about setting up HR policies, let's say. Um, and so often they come to regret it because then like there is somebody who is pregnant at the company and they have a horrible experience because there's no parental leave policy um, or, you know, some other situation comes up like that um, where they're then behind the eight ball and, and sort of like the cost of cleaning up that mistake um, is far more onerous than the amount of time and effort would have taken to proactively like set up those policies and or document um, the way that you want people in your company to, to behave and operate. Um, so I think that's like a, a big, big category. Um, is like figuring out like what are those like must-haves? Um, how do you do how do you figure that out in a lightweight way? How do you deploy those policies, that documentation in a lightweight way? Um, you know, and I do think that like sort of everything related to to legal topics, um, that's probably another big category. Um, you know, you don't need to be, you don't need to, you certainly don't need like a general counsel when you're a small startup. Um, but you should have a relationship with a lawyer and you should like talk somewhat regularly about like what other startups in your domain and at your phase of growth 
are navigating so that you can be aware of where those third rail issues lie. And I mean, we have a, some incredible law firms here in Boston, many of whom have really, really incredible deals and offers for startup founders um, that are fairly inexpensive, but you know, with a view to building a long-term relationship. Cool. Very helpful. Uh, just thanks for letting me double click on a few of those sort of early on here. Uh, you're 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 local. You're from Harvard, Mass. Is that I right? am. Yeah. yeah, Harvard is like 45 minutes outside of Boston. A lot of apple orchards. Nice. Yeah, th- I I think that's the time I've gone is probably this time of the year for like apple picking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What was what was it? What was it? What was childhood like in Harvard, Massachusetts? Um, fairly remote. Um, you know, my my family and I lived basically in the middle of the woods. I think our nearest neighbor was about like a mile away. Um, and, you know, very safe in that regard. Um, a little bit boring at times, but I think like that's, you know, kids being a little bit bored is probably a good thing. And my, now as a parent, I can say kids being bored is probably a good thing. Like I consequently like read voraciously and I'm, you know, I think that probably has set me up for success in so many ways. I don't even fully understand yet. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think I I was very lucky in that my parents are both very um, loving, kind people who are very devoted to like my education, um, you know, and and you know my growth as a as a as a good person. Cool. And so yeah, talk about the influence of your parents growing up. You you mentioned um, prepod that your father was an immigrant and entrepreneur. Um, where, where did he immigrate from? Yeah, he so my father is Swiss. Um, and he came to the United States um, when he was about 12 years old, um, did not speak a lick of English, um, you know, grew up like in New York City, in Brooklyn, um, and really like pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And, and um, he started a company himself. Uh, he was in, he was a, a, a manufacturer's representative in the office furniture space. And I remember like as a kid going into his office, um, it was funny at the time he was in the seaport district in Boston when there were like no buildings whatsoever. His rent was dirt cheap. Um, You know, it's funny to go back now and see that same space, like where his office was because it was such a no man's land there. But um, I, I really loved that experience growing up of seeing my father like you know, building this business and and hiring people and employing people. He saw, he thought he cared so deeply about the people who were on his team, um, and I think that that taught me a lot about what it means to like build build a team and build a cu- culture and display loyalty and empathy for those who are on your team. Um, and you know, he he ran that that business like really for for my entire life. Um, and then meanwhile, my mother. Um, interestingly enough, she, she almost her entire career was in a bank as well, First Bank of Boston, um, which later was acquired by Fleet and then Bank of America. Um, but she came to that as a city planner, um, and her entire focus was on was on fair lending, um, you know, having affordable housing in and around Boston and New England. Um, and I think you know she she taught me a lot also, um, you know, in in regard to you know, what it means to think about like the impact that a large company has on its community um, and being really like responsible, you know, citizens of that community, members of that community. Very cool. That's really dynamic experience and wisdom that you got from each of your parents. I'm, I'm curious, was 
was your first job working or supporting your dad at all in, in his company? Did you did it become a bit of a a family working affair? Um, I did want to follow my father's footsteps, but not in that way. He was a shoe shine boy in Brooklyn. And I, you know, my mom was like, I was a babysitter. And my father told me that he was a shoe shine boy. I was like, cool, I'll be a shoe shine. Um, so <laughs> that did not end up happening. I um I did more babysitting than I ever did shoe shining. Um, but yeah, I I always had jobs um, you know, from a fairly young age. Um I think like, I, I don't know, I don't know if this is weird or not, but I like weirdly, like I, I really enjoyed it. Like I liked earning money. I liked trying new things. Um, so, you know, I did a lot of babysitting even for our next door neighbors, um, you know, a mile away, (laughs) but like our, I did a lot of babysitting, um, you know, in junior high school. Um, I, I scooped ice cream at Kimball's farm for anyone who's local and knows that place. Um, turns out you can get really big tips at Kimball's farm. Um, people are happy when they're getting ice cream. Totally. (laughs) totally. Uh, yeah. So had a lot of different kinds of jobs, um, growing up, but liked that sort of excitement, you know, I worked in, um, you know, in an office for a summer, like I did a lot of different kinds of things. I, I taught for a couple summers. Um, and I think that that, that variety of experiences did so much to teach me from an early age, like what I liked and what I didn't like. Um, and I think that that kind of, that kind of broad experience goes such a long way early in your career and early in your life and helping you like pattern match of what you're good at and what you want to pursue. Yeah. There's two sort of schools of thought. Um, I'm going to strongly tip my hand, which one I fall in by just <laughs> saying that it's sort of, and I think there's even a, I think it's a, there's a, I want to say there's a book out now. I haven't haven't read it yet, but it it's uh, I think I read an essay from it where like how ge- like generalists are set up to triumph in the world. Um, and it's interesting, like what's old is new. Like you consider like a liberal arts education, you know, and you consider sort of like a more of a horizontal kind of like you know breadth, like master of many, you know, like and and a master of many doesn't mean you can't be. A, it means you're a master of none. It means you know you can you can go deep in in many different directions, get a lot of different experiences. But um, the modern economy tends to um, be suited for folks that have a range of experience and can be agile and nimble because your your parents had the lanes they were in for their jobs. You know, my father was in his UPS driving lane for 37 years. It's different for us. Um, and it's even different for us, even in a, in a specific role, like what startups need from you in your role at SBB, what they needed during the pandemic, what they need in 2022, what they'll need during this bear market we're in, what they'll need when Web3 and Metaverse really reveals itself. The ability to, to adapt, to change, to draw on disparate experiences and connect them together, like there's a lot of strength in that. And I guess, you know, sort of the, the, the parents in us, I think it's, I, I'm certainly mindful of that as we're raising our daughter. Like, you know, you mentioned you read a lot growing up and I imagine um, you, you, you read a lot with your son. We read a lot with our daughter and we, we even try to like introduce just like a range of books. Um, even at five years old, I think he's, how old is your son? Is he seven? He's eight. He's eight. Um, okay. He's eight. My daughter's yeah. 10. And so, yeah, I don't know if you want to just like, riff off that a little bit, but I'm just curious, like, you know, that just the, the being a generalist yourself and having found success, like, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the parenting side of things. Like it's a really interesting dynamic can be at times sort of, um, you know, cha- you know, challenging world for a young person to navigate. 
And, yeah. but, but we have, you, you have this unique experience to kind of help your son, you know, be suited for all the different pivots that will be required to be successful. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. I heard, um, a, a talk that somebody gave many years ago, defining like exactly that, um, kind of like dichotomy of perspectives, um, and describing it as the, um, the porcupine versus the fox, like foxes versus mm. porcupines. Like porcupines are really good at one thing and they're pretty bad at everything else. Like they're really good at self-defense. Um, foxes, meanwhile, like they're okay at self-defense. Like they have claws and sharp teeth. Like they're relatively fast, but they're not the fastest out there. They're fairly good at hiding. Like they're good at a lot of different things. Um, and this talk um, was, you know, around the fact that our economy, to your point, Zach, like our economy um, it, it is better and easier in many regards, maybe most regards, to be a fox. Um, being well-rounded, having a very diverse skill set um, lets you be a bit more nimble. Um, but many of our, like uh, our university system, like really prioritizes porcupines. Um, you Specialization. Know, we, exactly. Like yeah. universities are like, oh, wow, like this person is the most talented, like, you know, violinist ever mm-hmm. but like they you know maybe lack these other pieces or they mm-hmm. haven't prioritized any of these other pieces um and that 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 sort of desire for specialization is sort of a detriment um to future members of the like the economy um because some of these basic building blocks around you know writing skills verbal communication um you know basic fluency with math um you know aren't aren't necessarily prioritized in the way that they could be or should be. Yeah. What's interesting. Are you a sports fan? I have to admit, I mean, I love going to a Red Sox game, but otherwise like, meh. Well, I'm going to, I'll make a quick sports analogy, which is it. So things are shifting in sports right now. So um, specialization is what comes to mind because uh, some of the, some of the best quarterbacks in the NFL that get drafted, they've had a quarterbacks coach since they were like 12 years old. So they've been, they were that violinist in football and they had their quarterbacks coach all the way through. And then those, but those players, then they go to a top football program in college. So by the time an NFL team drafts them, like they're like close to nine, you know, they're at 90% of their, their ability. And then you have a guy like Josh Allen. So he's probably going to win the MVP this year in the Mm -hmm. NFL. He's from middle of no, he's like from the Harvard mass of California. So he, <laughs> sorry, 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 I have your attention. Yeah. Um, and he, so he's from you know nowhere, California and didn't go to a big high school threw for a lot of yards, was a great quarterback. Didn't go to a big college program, super raw talent. Didn't complete a high percentage of passes, no personal quarterback coach, nothing. He gets drafted after all these quarterbacks in the, in the draft that he's in as he now has all these professional coaches and he's being taught and given all this experience for the first, for the first time, yeah. he's just going leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds. And there's like the, the, the team he plays on doesn't even have a running game. They don't have, mm. they, they can't even run the football. It doesn't matter. This guy is just going other limits. And so, you know, there's something also to be said about sort of plateauing with the specialization. It's like, well, you can over-specialize almost to the detriment of not just having honed other skills. Uh, and it's happening in sports and a lot of teams are starting to sort of like rethink how they're going to put scouts out into the world to like evaluate talent because specialization is just like too, almost too rampant, um, in sports. And then one other thing is it's actually leading to injuries. Cause when you do that Mm. physically, if you just do a specific sport and you do those types of motions over and over, 
you actually overtax certain muscles and it's leading to and, and injuries are way up and they're starting to say that um specialization in sports is leading to more injuries so mm. I, i'm you can clearly tell i'm 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 on the i'm sort of fully on the fox train <laughs> yeah well, and i mean just to build on that like even a little bit further i think that what the example that you share is really interesting because i think it underscores the importance of being good at learning um and i think like bringing it back to like startups and startup founders um i've noticed that um that there are certain like attributes that I've seen in some of the most successful founders I've had the pleasure of working with. And then the sort of opposite of true of some of those who've like really struggled. And I think oftentimes it's like openness to new information, a willingness to rethink your, like to have strong opinions, but loosely held that you're willing to rethink with new information, um, you know, a, a willingness and a desire and an aptitude for learning um, you know, just to, to share a specific example, um, you know, one of my favorite experiences in the startup world here in Boston was, um, with the video hosting company Wistia. And I joined Wistia, you know, when we were still like, you know, sub 20 people, it was teeny tiny. Um, and I admire the two co-founders, Chris Savage and Brendan Schwartz tremendously for Chris so has been years. on this pod. Oh, love it. I went um, pre pre COVID. I actually got to go to the Wistia office before uh, the apocalypse came in. But but awesome. But super yes. fascinated by the Wistia business, and as a media entertainment kind of tech consultant, like very much up to speed on the evolution of that business. That's really cool. You were there like first twenty employees. That's awesome. Yeah, and then was there for almost five years. And what struck me again and again and again about both Chris and Brendan. Um, was their sort of openness to new information, um, yeah. you know, having very little like ego attached to um, their perspective mm -hmm. um, and an aptitude for learning. Like, I think that both of them really like, um, you know, took in new information, adapted their thinking in a beautiful way that helped, you know, propel the company forward, helped help the culture be the incredible culture that it is, um, you know, because, and, and so back to your example, like, I think that, um, you know, oftentimes being a generalist, oftentimes you are a generalist because you're good at learning. And so you want to learn many different things, you know, versus like just nose to the grindstone doing this one thing. I think you become a more like nimble learner um, mm -hmm. if you're flexing that, that, that learning muscle in like many different domains. And I think the same is true oftentimes for startup founders, like the, those founders who are open to new information are good at learning in new contexts, um, you know, tend to be a bit more successful than those who are or less so. I love that. That's a great point. I, I want to ask you actually a little bit about sort of it, some of your experience and, and talk a little about like the Wisty experience and whatnot. But I want to first, I want to double click on as, as you're sort of a, a con, you know, sort of a, a continuous learner. Is there anything right now? Like, is there just a book you're reading or just like a new skill you're trying to hone? Like, is there anything that you've picked up? Are you trying to, do you speak Swiss or you try, you try to learn <laughs> Swiss to speak like anything, anything new that you're taking on these days from the learn in the learning department? Yes. I have a big goal, Zach, okay. actually. Um, so, um, about 20 years ago, the modern library published a list of the 100 best books written in English. Um, I have been slowly trying to chip away at this list. I would really like to, you know, read every book on this list. Um, I'm probably around 85 or 90 books right now. Um, I think because that list prompted me to step out of my comfort zone and read books I might not, not otherwise have picked up. 
Um, I got to know some really incredible authors I might not otherwise have known. I also have found some that I don't prefer. Um, but that is my big goal right now um, is to finish reading that list. Oh, that's really cool. When we get to, and it's interesting, you even have like a, a different sort of challenge for for listeners. We'll get to at the end, but that's actually a fun one too. Just like check out the the hundred top books in English and 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 crack through that list. Uh, and there's also a uh, a corollary list, the yeah. readers list. Um, so uh, when they release this, then um, they also invited folks to come up with their own sort of like reader's choice um, yeah. list. And, you know, there's some overlap, maybe 20%, I would estimate. Um, yeah. But that's an interesting one to check out too. Nice. Uh, are you familiar with um, Legends of the Fall, the, the movie that kind of made Brad Pitt's career? Have you ever yeah. read Jim Harrison? No. So I recommend Jim Harrison. Um, have you ever read Kurt Vonnegut? I love Kurt Vonnegut. Okay. So if you like Kurt Vonnegut, you like Jim Harrison. A um, little bit more like in, introspective stream of conscious style writing and sort of mm. like nice to just kind of be in someone else's brain for a bit. But that's he's who wrote Legends of the Fall. Um, oh. He does this thing where he drops um, in his writing, he drops authors that influence him. Mm. And so I've been doing this thing where like my... So my brother's like, he's a writer and he's always reading. And lucky for me, like he point, he's like, Hey, I was in Europe and I discovered Jim. And I discovered all these Jim Harrison books and you got to read these novellas. They're 70, 80 pages. You just, you, you just can't stop. And so, but one of the things that he does, he names drops authors and I'll kind of go out on the tree of the authors that get name dropped. And similar to what you said, like sometimes the authors are like really interesting. And then sometimes they're like, they're taking the, the sort of like not that I can't read an, like a nihilist author, but like, it's just so dark and stormy. I'm just like, I can't do it. Uh, but it's really, it's, it's, it's kind of one of my little challenges for myself, which is like when an author I like indicates there's an author that influenced them, let me go check that out. And and I found some like really interesting, like poets and philosophers mm. from just like taking that approach. Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> um, I love, I, I would love to like, I should I should look into this like explore authors Goodread lists. Yeah, exactly, because it's like that's like the third layer of like that list. Like, what's the authors oh, Goodreads list? Um, yeah. So, so when you went to college, were you you had done some? Had you done some time like teaching? At what point were you kind of like teaching and considered that as a career? And like when you went to school, what were you thinking might be the career path for you? And then I'm sort of curious, like how that evolved over the course of college and then what the beginning of your career looked like? Yeah. Um, I, I have always been very much like a dual left brain and right brain person. Um, so in, I started out college as a math major, um, took, you know, a ton of math classes, um, for the first half of college, uh, then for some odd reason, decided to switch to comparative literature um, and I mean, I, I really enjoy literature, obviously, um, but, you know, also like we need more women in math. So I, I wish I, I wish I had um, completed like that, that math major, um, but sort of took the lens of like, OK, I think I might like to be a math teacher um, during the summers in college. Um, I did a variety of different sort of teaching gigs. Um, you know, I was like a CIT at a traditional day camp. Um, I did a bunch of like SAT uh, classes and, and tutoring. Um, for two summers, I worked at the summer program at Yale, uh, where I taught cryptography classes to high school students, so like code writing and code breaking. Um, 
and really, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I like went on to do a master's in education. Um, but I think that I, I realized at some point that it like didn't totally like fulfill all parts of me. Um, and my senior year at Brown, um, I ended up deciding to launch a company with a classmate. Um, and it was like one of these situations where we spotted a need. Um, you know, we, you know, in the dorms late at night or whatever, we're like, we could solve this. Like we could start a company with this. And the more we talked about it, we're like, wow, we could actually solve this. You know, did some back of the envelope math on how it might work. And we're like, yeah, there's kind of a lot of money to be made here. Ended up launching a company. It was a, it was a tech enabled moving and storage company um, for college students. And it was like, honestly, it was like way more successful than we had imagined or even like dared to hope for. Um, it was, you know, at the time it felt like it was very lucrative. Um, but honestly, like, I think the biggest win there was that it made me realize like how much, how much I loved business, how much I loved, um, you know, starting something and building and, and growing a company. Um, and it, that was really like the, the experience that, that prompted me to pursue business school. So, um, you know, I think that was this, this sort of weird moment that made me realize like, okay, I do love education. There's so much about that that appeals to me, but like, it doesn't really fulfill this whole other part of me that likes to like experiment and, and build something. Cool. So then you, you went to Sloan, MIT, yep. Sloan School of Management and, um, uh, Fun little fact. When I, so I went to Boston University, actually wearing my terrier. So you, listeners won't be able to see, but you can see my, <laughs> love my it. Be, be terrier's shirt. But my college roommate, um, his name's Robert Cusimano. And so his mm -hmm. uncle, Dr. Cusimano, taught a class at Sloan. It was actually the class that like HubSpot was founded in, like back in the so I used to go, he used to let us go in and sit in on his lectures. So like I've, Amazing. I have a good amount of uh, unofficial MIT uh, Sloan experience. I just, I, I'm in, and then worked at uh, CIC and Kendall Square for a number of years, working with a lot of lovely, humble entrepreneurs out of MIT. I just, I love the vibe and the culture there. Um, Me talk too. A, talk a little bit about that and, and sort of what that experience was like and, and then what sort of opportunities you had in front of you and, and ultimately like what you chose to do sort of after Sloan. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I think that like MIT and, and Sloan specifically um, brings forth the best attributes. Um, I love the culture there and I love the kind of people they attract and the, and the kind of experience that they create. Um, I think it's an incredibly, it, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, like very low ego group. It's a, a lot of people who just really love whatever that thing is that they love and they want to tell you about it and they want to build around it and they want to like rope you into helping build that. Um, and I, I really adored that. Like it was just so much, um, you know, like energy and focus on all of the right things, in my opinion. Second of all, um, MIT and Sloan are very focused on experiential learning. Um, and I am very much an experiential learner. Like I like learning by doing. Um, and they made that possible for me in ways that like just blew my mind. So for example, my first year at Sloan, um, I had a, a fully paid for um, trip to um, Bangalore, India, which is sort of like the Silicon Valley of India, um, where I worked on a consulting project for a company 
there in Bangalore for two weeks, you know, nights and weekends were my own, but, um, you know, I, I, they, they had me and a team of students working for them for those two weeks. And it was such an incredible experience that I, you know, I think even just traveling in India, like would have felt so special, but having that opportunity as well as the opportunity to see how this Indian team operated and communicated with one another, um, just allowed me to learn about, um, you know, business globally in a way that no other experience could have. Um, and then my second year, I had the exact same opportunity to go um, to Guangzhou in China, um, which also is sort of the hub of tech in China. Um, and having those again, like, you know, I had so much student debt, but that experience was paid for. Um, so I think those types of experiences that are made possible um, made it like what was already a really incredible experience, like that much more powerful. And then the final thing I just want to touch on, because I think it, I think it matters a lot. And it comes back a little bit to our, our fox versus hedgehog conversation. Um, I remember that on the, you know, one of the very first days on campus, um, the dean of the business school, Dean Schmidtlein, gave a talk about why it is called the Sloan School of Management. Um, you know, most business schools call them, you know, Harvard Business School, um, refer to themselves as such. But Sloan has held on to this term, um, Sloan School of Management. And I remember the dean talking about the fact that that was a very intentional decision, that um, management and the practice of management and being a good people manager, um, you know, being a good like general manager of business operations, that that was what mattered. And I, you know, over the years have just come to find that perspective so much, so true again and again and again. Um, because I think that ultimately the way that you manage your, your people, your money, your team, your operations, your product, like all of that, um, it's not an art, like it's a science and you can teach it and you can, you can get good at it. Um, and I think that being, I, I think it's all too easy to assume that like, oh, well, I don't know if you've been in a job for a long time, like you'll automatically be good at managing other people doing that same job. Hmm. Not true. I think we see that like fall flat again and again. Um, I think it takes hard work to become a good manager. Um, and I think that schools like Sloan that really lean in on the importance of good management, um, you know, they they give their students a competitive advantage that other people don't have. That's awesome. That's so cool. So so what kind of opportunities were you keen to take on? Like, did you have another aha moment towards the end of Sloan, like you did at Brown for your own startup idea? Did you have any of those passionate sort of peers that were trying to pull, like pulling you into startups? Like what, like when, you know, when, when did Wistia come into the picture? Like what was sort of, what was next? Yeah. After Sloan, um, I, you know, I, I had come from SAS before business school, um, really liked, you know, really liked that space. Um, I joined a, a SaaS business um, in the language learning space. Um, I also, you know, studied a lot of language in college. So that was appealing to me in three different ways, like a, a cool SaaS business focused on language and focused on learning. Um, and so it brought all these different passions of mine together. And that company, Transparent Language, was very cool in that, um, you know, they made products for people like you and me. Um, and also they made products for universities and for the US military. Um, so until embarrassingly recently, we would send people to other countries like with weapons and not a lick of the language 
spoken in the country. Like not even drop your weapon. Um, and that changed a certain point, thankfully, um, where, you know, we started developing policies and best practices around language learning before deploying folks to other countries. Um, and transparent language is one of the biggest providers of language learning materials um, to the Navy, to the Marine Corps, and to other, other um, you know, parts of um, the military. And it was a really great experience because it taught me um you know, a lot about how to sell into like massive organizations, you know, how to write an RFP response, um, you know, how to break into new spaces. Um, you know, they were just getting their education practice off the ground when I joined. Um, so that was a really fun and interesting experience that that combined so many of these different pieces that I loved. Um, I was there for a while, um, about about four years. Um, it was, it's based in Nashville, New Hampshire, and I have lived in Boston, you know, like since being at Sloan. So the location, like, especially I was there when I had my first child and, and that commute ultimately was sort of the thing. Um, like I still am in touch with my, my former colleagues there. I, I love that team. Um, ultimately the location just like was not right for me. And that's when I, um, joined the team at Wistia. Cool. So then you're at, and you're at Wistia for five years. Um, close to five years. And it was, um, I think that was at some point somebody, um, made this analogy to me, um, a friend, Dan Slagan, local, like tech guy as well. Um, he made the analogy that your first, um, almost like your first, like real formative fast growing startup experience is a little bit like your first love. Um, and I found that to be so true. Like, I think that, that it will always, it will always be, um, this like quintessential startup experience. Like it was so, uh, you know, I, I, it was, it was really it's like, romanticized kind of was, a bit. yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was yeah. like everything. <laughs> so much fun. Yeah. That's cool. So, uh, all right, well, let's talk a bit about like some, how, some of this experience and applying it to sort of the role you're in now at SVB, because in, we, we, we touched on this a little bit pre-pod, like it's, it's one thing to, for banks to buy billboards and kind of, you know, impress upon people. And, and you, we talk about, you talk about the rule of seven, you know, in marketing, like it, it, even if, even if a bank shows up early and often and with plenty of repetition and frequency in, in front of folks like, Hey, we're here, we're here to support you, but it's sort of, it's static. It's like, it's, it's one to many. It's not necessarily, it's not necessarily sort of reciprocal reciprocal or, or sort of uh, there's there's not like much engagement. SBB's you know completely on this end of the spectrum where it's sort of like we check the boxes of a bank and then do and that's like 20% of what we do. And then the 80% of what we do is like we're figuring out all sorts of solutions to support and as you put early on, founder success. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious like you know in the time that you've been at SBB like maybe some anecdotal examples of some founder success, maybe some founders you're working with now um, or, or initiatives or just like, and, and some, and and maybe to the extent that some of your experience, you've you've been able to draw on that romantic experience you had at Wistia, you know, for a particular founder you're working with now. Uh, But yeah, like what, what, what's it, what's it like? What's it like being sort of in the the trenches day to day, sort of playing that mentor role to this, you know, batch of, of mentees you have here in Boston? Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, um, I find that 
so much of the work that I do, especially like when first getting to know a founder, is just asking a lot of questions. Just to, you know, it, because again, like back to our earlier conversation, oftentimes they Learn. don't know the questions to ask. So I almost yeah. need to draw out like, okay, what is the biggest opportunity yeah. that you could go after? What is the biggest pain point? Um, and you know, from there, I think that like especially because I've been, you know, I grew up around Boston and now have been here and worked here for whatever, 15 years. Um, I know a lot of people. So even if I don't know the answer, I likely know the person who has the answer. Um, but to share a couple examples of, of what this might look like day to day, um, you know, uh, I, I have a, a pretty strong marketing background. Like that's, you know, marketing and strategic partnerships is where I've spent a lot of my time. Um, and so oftentimes I will advise founders on their growth strategy. Right now, of course, because you know, the economy is a little weird. Like venture capital money is a little bit slower, not a little bit, is is slower to flow than in 2021. Um, So almost every founder I talk to right now is thinking about like, okay, how do I make more money faster? um, And how do I extend my cash runway? Mm -hmm. And my own, my marketing background um, comes into play there. Um, in that I can advise and and hopefully help them like make make good decisions with their marketing dollars um, to get that the highest possible ROI. And thinking about like that that Wistie experience in particular, you know, at this point, like I know a lot about video marketing. Um, so there are a number of founders that I've helped make homepage videos. Helped yeah. like a few of them have come into our office and I've helped them shoot videos to use to share with investors or to add onto their website um, or to use on social um, because it's one of those things that like can cost a a remarkably small amount of money if you have the right setup, um, but can have a massive impact on um, SEO, on web traffic, on awareness, um, you know, on, on somebody's willingness to sign up for your product. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's one example. That's cool. And just to butt in there on the flip and on the flip side, like it's, it's one of the, like the video vendor market is probably the biggest pendulum swing I know in my experience as a 15 plus year consultant, like you could spend thousands of dollars on uh, amazing videos. You could spend tens of thousands and then you can have like similar companies with similar outputs and similar productions charging hundreds of thousands. It's like the wildest sort of um, disparity, I guess, um, yeah. oftentimes in, in in costs. And I think it's it's a particular area that um, I've been very careful to, to select partners over the years um, and be a little bit more sort of like lean and mean and what I typically would recommend from a video production standpoint. But that's that's incredible. Um, and just knowing like, you know, Wistia being that sort of like that B2B like analytics driven sort of player, um, you know, for, for and the, all the experience you must have from that. I mean, there's just like, that's a whole, you could just be specialized in that area and you could have a very successful, you can make a very successful living with that experience. And that's just like one facet of your general, you know, range of skill sets, which is really neat. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, another big area, um, which is sort of marketing related, um, but, you know, is around like raising money, um, you know, building your pitch deck, telling your story, um, you know, m- 
most of the founders in our portfolio here in New England um, do at some point want to raise raise VC money. Um, and you know, I I was a longtime angel investor before joining SVB. Um, I've worked on many pitch decks myself. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of, of deal flow and pitch decks. Um, so that's an area where like I spend a lot of my time as well. So a lot of founders are like, okay, I just I, I need I need a safe space where I can do a dry run, where I can get feedback. Like I want to make sure I'm telling the story in a compelling way. Um, help me, help me polish this up, help me make this better. Um I'd say maybe the the final piece I would touch on is around hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my past role, um, I managed a team of almost 150 people. I was, you know, I I was adamant about the fact that like I wanted to interview like at, <laughs> in an ideal world, like 100% of people. Um, you know, I and then that's an area where again, back to the fact that like if you're a first-time founder, there's so much you don't you don't know that you don't know. Um, and I think interviewing people is really hard. Hiring the right people is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you get it wrong, it's a very, it can be a very like painful and costly, you know, financially and in terms of your time and your mental and emotional energy, um, which founders really need to like harness and, and deploy in the right way, um, you know, mistake to clean up. Um, so I'd say that's sort of like a, a final area that I touch on where, where I spend a lot of time, um, given my past experience, um, advising and helping founders think through their strategy. Cool. I have a follow-up question on, on that one. Are there certain functions of the business, meaning like marketing, sales, HR, recruiting, like where you have leaned towards like recommending a, cons- a consulting versus full time, and you know where do you, where do you net out in terms of like because sometimes a lot of the, like a lot of the founders that I've worked with over the years like they they like some of the hedges they make are like where they do sort of ten ninety nine consultants yeah and not go all in on the in on the employees uh, but where do you net out there are there any areas that you recommend one way or the other. Yeah, I I mean, I should preface this by saying that every business is different. Um, there is definitely no one size fits all. Um, and so it's so dependent on what type of product you have or service you're offering or business you're building. That said, um, I think that there are certain functions that really, really require a very deep understanding of, of the product, of the team, of the culture. Um, and others that are it where it's okay to be a bit more removed. So, for example, um, you know, we talk a lot at SVB um, within our startup banking practice with like fractional CFO teams. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of that, um, you know, accounting controllers, CFOs, like a lot of those functions. Um, don't require that you have like a really close finger on the pulse of the culture of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of those functions, I think, can be done, um, you know, with fractional folks or 1099 folks um, in a way that like product could not. Like I, you know, I, I think that having people who really, really get like the product and the market you're serving um, that matters so, so much. And, and similarly, like marketing, um, I, you know, I think that there are certain marketing functions that can be done elsewhere. Um, 
but like, you know, the sort of the sort of deep understanding of your customers' pain points, the deep understanding of, of exactly what features solve those pain points and why and how and how to frame those things. Um, I think that's really, really hard to hand off to somebody else. And I think it's risky to hand off to somebody else as well, because you need to be growing that institutional knowledge internally. Um, so, you know, so that you can lean on it at, at later and you can hire the best people, you know, two years out. Yeah, that's cool. The other follow-up question is on the second item you hit on, which was the the pitch decks. I'm curious. Uh, I, I find myself in that role a lot with companies and I'll just share first. Like I, the first thing, the first thing I'm always blown away by is when I see like a pitch deck that's like 30 to 50 slides. Mm. Um, and I'm oftentimes like, let's, I'm like a goal should be 12. Um, and then, and then even with an appendix, maybe 20, but so I think just from a length standpoint, I'm curious where you net out and then much more visually friendly than, um, then then word heavy is 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 my other big one i just oftentimes like it's really uh and and really nailing like the story and the value prop and the opportunity in like the first few slides uh but curious like where like what kind of tips and what are the best practices and things that you come in and where you oftentimes you know can help make enhancements or that you would recommend to folks listening who are working on pitch decks especially for raising capital uh mm. in, in this difficult market like what kind of advice do you have yeah. Um, so first of all, most early stage investors um, are pretty adamant about the fact that they they are making bets mostly on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, as you point out, Zach, that story is paramount. Um, it needs to be really clear why this is the right team, like why they have the passion and drive, why they have the deep expertise, like why, you know, why they have the grit and the hustle to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that absolutely has to come through in the pitch deck, um, and and then in the in the narrative that overlays that pitch deck. Okay. Second of all, um, and I think this is probably a 2022 thing um, more than you know in you know 2021, um, but like revenue is so important right now. Like you know when when people are. You know, People have been slower to write checks, but when they do, um, it is generally because there are really, really strong revenue and traction, um, and you know, you know, a, a, a strong LTV to CAC ratio. Like they really want to see that um, that this this bet that they're making has been de-risked um, based on evidence that like this is going to be a successful company. Um, so I, you know, I always love it when I see a founder coming in with a pitch deck um, where like they can show exactly like, you know, this early signs of revenue, they can show a 10 to one lifetime value to customer acquisition cost ratio um, that they can show, you know, these, these upsells that they've got been getting from customers. Um, because I think that's what, um, you know, I, I talk with, with VCs and around and angel investors, not just in Boston, but all over the place, like you know, every day. Um, and those are those are the data points that they're really hungry for right now when they're seeing pitch decks. Um, and then last to your point about like um, pitch deck length, I I agree. I think that uh, you know you oftentimes you only have fifteen minutes of somebody's attention, so you need to to hit them hard with the most important and most salient facts. One thing that I've seen, I think there are differences of opinion about whether this is a good idea or a bad idea, um, but 
I think it often behooves founders to have two versions of their pitch deck, the one that they're doing in person, and then the one that they can send before or after a meeting. Um, because, you know, when you're in person, of course, you can add commentary, you can give examples. Um, but if you're sending over a pitch deck that had that's a little bit a little bit more sparse via email, a lot of that can get lost in translation, especially given the fact that um, sometimes the people who are doing a first pass on pitch decks they receive, those are maybe not the same people who are making a final investment decision. Um, it needs you need to be able to send that deck to somebody else and have them understand what you understood. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've made this similar uh, recommendation very recently, actually. Uh, nice. And and I like the uh, wise. I actually use the the phrase declaration of wise. That's what I tell. Uh, I had a big. We actually just we actually just created a piece of collateral for a founder I'm working with. Just just about their declaration of wise. Like why this initiative? Why this idea? Why this team specifically? And a big mm. part a big part of the why is what you hit on, which is like why you, why you founder and your mm. and your collective team like why to me is like the most important thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like that, that you would agree. Um, I'm, I'm a curious, big fan yeah. of the Simon Sinek start with why Ted talk an amazing, yeah, yeah. amazing Ted talk for yep. anyone who hasn't I've heard seen it. it. Yep. Absolutely. Um, cool. So the, the, the next question I want to ask, like before we get to like the, your final challenge for listeners is I'm outside of capital, which I think is, definitely challenging for founders right now um in this economy or, or you know in 2022 like post-covid times like you know we we talked about this a little bit a little bit pre-pod like what some of the challenges were during covid i'm a little i'm, I'm actually more curious about your thoughts on like what challenges are founders happening right now that you're experiencing and it you know for example building a team like you you mentioned that it's in some ways it was easier to, and I agree, like to build and hire and build like teams with talent from all over because no one could go into an office. But now people can go back into an office, but they don't want to go back into an office. And the no amount of free pizza is necessarily getting certain people in the office because they like their efficient habits at home. Um, so one challenge that I'm experiencing with some companies right now is what's the appropriate policy on you know, when to get folks in the office and, you know, they have long-term leases they're committed to. Um, what kind of challenges like are present right now that you feel like, you know, companies are, are challenged with and, and that you're, you're, you, you know, you're in a position to help. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think that, you know, I, it's interesting. Um, just yesterday I was perusing some proprietary data that um, you know we are working on um, that we have access to that we're working on um, about funding. And what's interesting is that, like, yes, um, like funding has slowed versus last year. Um, interestingly enough, um, valuations and the size of rounds at the at the like pre-seed and seed have not like are kind of where they were like mm. a year ago. It's I mean. Um, there's a lot of talk about what's going on right now, but at the very early stages, like it's not, it's it, like, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, that said, the pace is slow. Mm -hmm. And what that means, the reason I am sharing all this is because I think one of the biggest challenges that a lot of founders are facing um, is just like running out of money. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's such a like 
a painful and hard thing to navigate um, because, you know, oftentimes you have to make a lot of hard choices along the way. Um, and then you still might end up running out of money. Um, so, you know, I think first of all, like making sure that one of the big things that um, I talk with a lot of founders about is, you know, when you are spending money, like making sure that you are spending that money on um, initiatives that will impact your, you know, the bottom line. Um, so, you know, don't take out a billboard right now. Like you're not going to be able to measure if that's having an impact. Um, but if you do know that like, you know, ad spending on social, like has a 10 to one, like ROI, like, yes, spend money there. So, so make sure you're spending money on things that where you can gauge the impact, um, so that you can say yes to those that have an impact and no to the things that don't. Um, Second of all, to your point about, um, you know, being in office, um, I think you're, I mean, that's, I, I hear that, that same, that same, uh, perspective from founders almost every day that they want to give people flexibility. They are excited about not spending money on an office space, but at the same time, they want the ability to bring the team together, whether it's one or two days a week or, you know, for an offsite or for a hackathon or whatever it is. Um, and I think that that's challenging. We've tried to, um, you know, we obviously can't do this with, with all, you know, thousand-ish um, startups in our portfolio here in New England, but we've tried to be helpful in that regard um, in some cases by like, you know, having some teams in for a board meeting in our office yeah. um, or, or, you know, as I mentioned, like a couple founders came in and shot um, a, a video about their company, like in one of our conference rooms. Um, so I think that's, that's top of mind. Um, you know, and, and I, I've been excited also to see the way that other players here in Boston, um, are responding to that need. So, um, I don't know if you've gotten to check out the, the mass challenge space. They have a beautiful new mm -hmm. space and, um, it's such a, a hub for our community. I mean, I think, you know, CIC has long been that as well. Um, and I am excited to see like even more folks like creating space that's a bit more flexible to serve that need. Yeah, you and me both. Uh, I actually, it, it, well, so a couple of things. I've been in uh, the SVB office this year to help um, a Web3 company, Axelar, shoot a video for its, like an investor video. Like my buddy of mine, we were in there hanging out, hanging out with um, Jesse, even when they were even still like, there were slightly still some even restrictions. Um, but like SVB has just been incredible with like opening up doors like that. And I pen a column for built-in uh, or it's sort of like it's, it's originally they were like, Hey, write about marketing and, and business development and growth and that stuff. And I was like, I want to write about the future of work mm. and that, which your readers care about. And so actually the, the most, and I've done a few, a few columns a month for most of the year. And the most successful column was the one where the, the editor kind of, went ended up ultimately going with the title of um why businesses should basically businesses with offices should um allow employees to bring their friends to work mm. um but in the art like it just talked a lot like talked a lot about the value in having like a bit of an open door policy with rules um to encourage your employees to come in but to also create these like t-shaped opportunities for people to connect but also to give like certain earlier stage companies or companies that just don't necessarily need space a ton of time a place to come together and again it 
it makes sense for SVB. I think even in the article, I, like, I mentioned, like, I don't know if you've ever been in the Fidelity space mm, by South yep. Station. It's massive. Yep. It is there's never anyone there. Um, crazy. And it's just like, there's all these interesting commercial properties. Um, it's like this in New York and other cities too, but just, you just look in Boston and there's, there's an interesting sort of like we work ask model, um, for some of these spaces where, you know, you could potentially even monetize it. Um, yeah. and you can, and you can sort of rethink your, your space a little bit and, and realize that there was a there was a reason we were had the valuation it had. I mean, part of it was also we live, which I think wasn't like ever going to really take off um, as much as people or investors thought. But that model is a really interesting model for sort of folks that just own real estate. And then they, you look at platforms in Boston, like what um, Chase Garbarino and Greg Gomer, the former Bostino founders, you know where this yeah. podcast will be. Like they're at HQO now. And that's a really interesting, like they're doing really interesting stuff to like bring, you know, tech and enterprise software to like commercial real estate. And I've been thinking a lot about like how they can evolve to sort of help companies sort of almost provide almost Airbnb type um, opportunities for companies to sort of post up around the city. So I think we're in the super infancy of a new type of wave of how people are always going to end up in the city, but it's it's going to have to be a little bit more democratized in terms of like in a good way for, for, for folks that are maybe independent consultants or small businesses to find their little pockets and, and cultures to kind of glom onto. I think it could be really interesting. I think it could, I think it could be, I think it's complicated, Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there and, and there's potentially like startup, like revenue generating immediate revenue generating, like startup opportunities for folks that can kind of be the platforms, the brokers, the conduits through all this. So um, I don't know, that's kind of just like a big kind of idea on all this at the end. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that, but I'm, I'm eager and excited to see what Boston might do with that. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, to take that, um, you're to sort of share one additional angle on this. Um, I have a very sneaky, not so sneaky, actually ulterior motive um, which is that I want Boston, like 10 years from now, 20 yeah. years from now, I want everybody in the U.S. to like recognize Boston as the best place to start a company. Like, I think that just as 10 years ago, like the Bay Area was perceived in that way. Like, I think that Boston has all the raw ingredients to be known as the best place to start a company between just the like massive amount of intelligence and talent that we have here to the types of other like top tier law firms and incubator. I mean, I, I think, um, and I think maybe paramount is the fact that we have this incredibly like generous and tight knit community. Um, I think that the, the kind of like generosity of time and help and connections is unparalleled anywhere else. And coming back to your point, one aspect that can help um, elevate and and catalyze even more of that kind of generosity um, is having more shared spaces. Because um, I do think that like oftentimes that yeah. that serendipity that happens when you bump into other people, like it ends up having these, these repercussions on the success of a business in incredible and often unforeseen ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming back to SVB, this has been a huge part of what we've been doing this year is, um, you know, trying to create community and trying to create seren- opportunities for serendipity and connection. So, you know, at, at the SVB office, we, we probably host like 
maybe two events a week, every single week. Um, you know, sometimes it's for, you know, female founders, sometimes it's for investors of color, sometimes it's for folks in climate tech, like, you know, there's often a, a sort of lens on the events that we're doing. Um, but I've had so many founders say like, oh my goodness, like because of that SVB event that you hosted, like I met five new investors and I have meetings set up with all of them for next week. Or, you know, I was feeling really alone and like I was going through a really hard phase and I found these incredible sort of peer mentors, um, you know, who I now am chatting with once a month on a once a month cadence and it's made all the difference in the world. Um, so I think that, um, you know, that SVB has a really big role. That, I mean, all of us have a big role to play here, um, but I'm pumped about the role that SVB yeah. is already playing in this because I think that, um, you know, the more that we can double down on the tight-knit community and the just generosity we have here in Boston, the more we will become known as the best place to start a company. That's cool. And there are certain points in not all conversations that I have for this podcast where I'm like, oh, that's it. Like that's the that's the opening teaser for this episode. But your um the intentions, by the way, that you have for Boston 10 years from now, those are the same intentions, aspirations that that I have for the city. I love I love that. Like best place to, to right start on. a business. And you can make the argument now, but it could be just like without question, unequivocally the best place, you know in the next five to 10 years. Uh, I think that's well said. It's like a, it's a strong note to end this conversation on. Before we go, uh, I'd love to give you the opportunity as we give all our guests to sort of share a challenge to listeners um, who've made it through to the end here in terms of, you know, what to go out and, you know, a challenge, you know, as they go out into the world. All right. My challenge is one that I'm, I'm putting on myself um, and, and, and asking everyone to come along with me is to at least once a month, pay it forward. Um, elevate, advise, mentor, have a conversation with somebody who's more green in their career than you are. And you know, I, if you're anything like me, you probably have so many people who helped you along the way. Um, and it can, you know, when in the daily hustle of job and life and family and kids and friends, um, it can be so easy to sort of just just focus on on getting the job done and doing what you need to do um, versus taking a conversation with a person you've never met before. Um, but I, I know for myself, like the days where I say yes to that, you know, informational interview or whatever, um, I end up being so glad that I did. And, and again, like I benefited from that so much. And, and back to Boston, like I think that it is saying yes to people, especially, you know, folks here in our community saying yes to that meeting, that, that piece of advice, that, um, you know, career perspective um, will only strengthen this incredible community that we already have. Love it. Challenge accepted here too. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll have to report back six months from now. Like, did you do it? Sounds good. Yeah. I try to make it a practice and yeah, yeah, definitely. It, I, I play. It, it's a little easier for me to to keep up on my end of the bargain because I play the, the entrepreneur in residence role at Endicott College, and I'm always get feel I'm fielding a lot of things from alumni and randomly and do a lot of like informational calls with them. So maybe I have to change my cadence. You know, maybe I have to make sure I do one a week. There you go. I love it, <laughs> uh, Kristen. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Zach. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm really excited to share this with the community and uh, hopefully getting a chance to meet uh, IRL soon at the uh, at the SVB office. Yes, to please. Yes. Cool. Awesome. You have a great rest of your day. Awesome. Thank okay. you. You too. Take care.
Bye. Bye. Cheers, Boston.